Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, how are you today? I am doing great, and how about you, Brian? Couldn't be better. Okay, I could, but I'm not going to, you know, quibble over it. (laughs) Well, it's a sort of typical winter day here in Alabama. That is, temperatures down in the 30s last night, getting up into the 60s today. And I know many in other parts of the country would say that is enviable. I kind of miss the snow sometimes myself, having originally come from Dakota Territory, but... At any rate, we're talking about rain tomorrow here, but you didn't tune into this for a weather forecast. Well, I'm so, glad glad you're having some temperate weather. We're we're uh, muddling through just windy, rainy, you know, sometimes frozen times here in southern Idaho. But somehow, I feel like both of us are getting off better than uh, perhaps say the West Coast, which is is getting kind of a deluge right now. Absolutely, but you know, what really does it matter when you think about? One of the fundamental things today, this idea of being able to define your own reality, the idea that I can define truth any way I want to define it. Okay, let's see how that works for weather. Why don't you just (laughs) live somewhere where there is a rainstorm or a hailstorm, sleet storm going on right now, or just kind of define yourself and say, for my reality, I'm living on the coast of southern Florida, and it's 90 degrees and sunny, and so that's my reality, regardless of what other people might think is going on outside. Try that. See if it works. Yeah, well, I'll just break out my hula skirt and step outside and see how that works out for me. But Mm -hmm. you make make a good point. Right now, we are seeing a lot of efforts to... uh, to to construct reality in a in a manner that may or may not really actually comport with reality. Case in point, um, a school district here in Idaho just earlier this week had a public hearing over a proposed policy change that uh, would allow so-called transgender students. Basically, it would the the policy adjusts the school's official policy and the district's policies to allow transgender students to choose which restroom or which locker room they would prefer to use. And you can probably see where that would be headed. Now, for the person who's doing the choosing, you know, their reality is being placed above everyone else's. And you might not be surprised to hear there were a lot of parents who were very concerned about that and very vocal about how they do not want to be conscripted into that other person's reality. Well, that's very well said. If you you want to define reality, go ahead and define it. But can you conscript other people to recognizing reality as you see it? We had a case where the foundation for moral law, where I serve as senior counsel, by the way, our website there, if you want to just find out more about what we at the Foundation for Moral Law are doing, you can go to morallaw.org. If you Google anything close to that, we'll come up, I'm sure. But anyway, this is a case up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the Linmar School District. And anyway, adopted a policy there that required all teachers and other students to address students by their preferred pronouns. And there were some penalties, including ultimately firing if you're an employee or expulsion if you're a student, if you refuse to address people by their preferred pronouns. Well, you know, I like the King James Bible. And so I've decided that my preferred pronouns are thee, thou, thy, and thine. (laughs) 
And I'd like to insist everybody address me with those pronouns. How are thee this morning? And how art thou? And so on. <laughs> but I, so I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't think they're going to say that I get to define my reality that way. But, you know, it's going even beyond that. And you're telling me that your kids have enlightened you on what they call furries today. And what is that all about? Any idea? Uh, you know, I, I have only heard that it's people who like to pretend they're animals, but that's about where my knowledge stops. Well, it goes a step beyond that. And supposedly, at least, they're not pretending they're animals. They really believe they are. And sometimes I have a little difficulty believing that these people really believe that. But we're supposed to take them at face value if they do. And interestingly enough, sometimes the way to handle this is to go along with it and take it to its logical conclusions and see if they want to live with those conclusions. My wife was telling me something she had heard on a Christian radio station about a couple whose son had come home from school for several days saying that he's a cat and insisting that he is a cat and apparently really believing this, but refusing to respond to anything else but being treated as a cat. Well, the family decided finally, okay, well then we will treat him as a, as a cat from now on. So supper time, everybody come to the table. And no, not you, you're a cat. <laughs> Cats, you, you, your, your bowl is over there on the floor. Now as a cat, you eat on the floor there. Or bedtime, no, you don't have a bed here. Cats go outside at night. So outside and catch all the mice you can. So the kid went outside. A few hours later, there was a knock on the door. They come to the door, and there's the kid. He said, I think I'm a boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a miraculous transformation both uh -oh. ways, I guess. Well, and Sometimes letting people show that I can't live this way. I, I can't live with this stupid ideology that I've adopted, and so I'm not going to follow it anymore. Sometimes just putting them to the test that way is what's needed. I think one of the, the things that concerns me most about the direction that we see things being taken is that we're being led away, not just from reality, but um, basically we're being told everything that came before us was um, racist, superstitious, wrong. You know, it all has to be rejected. And, and Colonel, this is where you are such an amazing resource in that uh, you have a very good knack of helping us make the connections of why were things, you know, why what were things that were understood by the founding generation, for instance, or even those who came before them, as to why they set up the system of laws, the, the Constitution itself, as opposed to, you know, the, the free-for-all that we're becoming right now? For one thing, the founding fathers recognized that truth is objective, that truth is God-ordained, and therefore, truth doesn't change. We read in Scripture, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Behold, I change not, saith the Lord. We see the Scripture say this, and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the truth. If Jesus is truth, and Jesus doesn't change, then truth doesn't change. 
And so the idea that there is absolute truth is a principle that the founding fathers would derive from Scripture, but consistent with natural law principles in other Western religions as well. And in fact, as we've been going through looking at some basic precepts of Hebrew law, and it seems like we've gotten sidetracked many times as we started this, but we're going to get into this more today. But one of the most basic of these is that God exists. He is one God. And therefore, because there is one God, yes, one God, and therefore, there is one truth. And if there is one truth, there is one law. If you believe that there are many gods, then there can be many truths and many law systems. God, Jehovah the Bible, has a law system that is revealed in his word, the scriptures, but Marduk of the Babylonians has another, and Zeus of the Greeks has another, and Ahura Mazda of the Persians has another, and so on. But if you believe there is one God, then there is one truth, and there is one law. And that law is a just law, because justice is one of God's qualities. So the law that he has promulgated is going to reflect his justice. Anyways, so those are the principles that we start with as we look to the precepts of Hebrew law. We would on to see that law reflects the will and character of God, that God's justice requires punishment for sin. And furthermore, as we saw a fifth principle, that God created man in his image. Now, being created in the image of God means that we possess certain human rights. And those human rights, they come, for one thing, from the fact that we are created in his image, and therefore we have certain human dignity. They come, secondly, from some of the commands of Scripture, the commands of the Decalogue in particular, when we see the command, thou shalt not kill, that conveys a right to life. Thou shalt not steal, that conveys a right to property, and so on. However, even though man is created in God's image, man is a sinner. Ever since the fall, man has been a sinner, and he continues to be sinful. And to combat sin, and to enable people to live together in a orderly and just society, God has created civil government. Civil government, some say, began with the covenant that God made with Noah. I would have to argue that it really begins before that. We read, for example, that Adam's son Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. We went out, he went out and he founded a city. And a city would certainly have to have some form of organization, some form of government, some form of law. And if we look to the period of time before the flood, thousands of years, we would see a population increase during that time. We'd see, by the time of the flood, thousands, perhaps millions of people. Again, some type of organization, some type of law would have to exist at this time. But 
After the flood, God makes his covenant with Noah, and in that covenant, he gives certain principles of law. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, that we give extreme punishment for the taking of human life because human life is precious. So God has established human government. And one of the purposes of human government is to punish crime and thereby preserve order. But as we saw, before government may punish crime, great precautions must be taken to ensure that no one is wrongly convicted. We see many of those principles in our legal system today, the right to a trial by jury, the right to counsel, the right to testify or refuse to testify, the right to subpoena witnesses and cross-examine them and so on. And all of these are designed to ensure that no one is wrongly convicted. But once a person's guilt has been proven, punishment becomes appropriate. And so that's about where we left off last time. So let's look at some principles of criminal law that we see them in the Hebrew system in Scripture. We don't see as clear a distinction between civil law and criminal law. You know, civil law as we see it in our system, for example, let's say that you drive drunk and you hit somebody and injure them. Well, a couple of things can happen as a result. You can be charged with a crime for that. You can be fined and put in jail. That's criminal law. But also, the person that you injured might sue you. And you go to court and you might owe damages to that person. That's tort law or civil law. When we deal with issues of breach of contract or probating wills, things like that, that is civil law. Well, the distinction between criminal and civil law is not quite as distinct in the Hebrew system, but it is there nevertheless. And it does involve a concept of freedom. <clears throat> James Orr wrote, Liberty consists not simply in external freedom or possession of the formal power of choice, but in deliverance from the darkening of the mind, the tyranny of sinful lusts, and the enthrallment of the will induced by a morally corrupt state. In a positive respect, it consists in the possession of holiness with the will and ability to do what is right and good. Such liberty is possible only in a renewed condition of soul and cannot exist apart from godliness. Well, so let's look at how criminal law as a means of preserving freedom, freedom from being abused by others, let's see how criminal law exists in the Hebrew system. First of all, we understand that in the Hebrew system, there is a corporate responsibility for sin. Responsibility for sin is both an individual and a corporate responsibility. An entire nation can be held responsible for the sin of one person. And the entire nation may reap the natural or divinely caused consequences of sin. In other words, the idea that if I sin, my children's hairs are set on edge and so on, that if I sin, my children may have consequences from that. They may. 
but not criminal consequences. In the criminal law, even in the Hebrew system, individuals paid criminal penalties only for offenses they committed, not for those their neighbors committed, their children committed, or their parents committed. Deuteronomy 24, 16, the fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. You know, I've often cited that in connection with the abortion issue. And we look to one of the justifications that is sometimes given for abortion, that that abortion should be justified in case of rape or incest. And if I'm talking to a young people's group, I'll often address them this way if that question raises. Let's say, let's say you're home from school and you're home alone. There's a knock on the door and there's a policeman at the door and the policeman says, you are under arrest. And you say, well, why? Because your father just robbed a bank. What question is going to be on your mind when you're told this? Well, they obviously answer, well, why should I have to be arrested because my father robbed a bank? He should be arrested for that. In the same way, why should an innocent unborn child pay the death penalty of abortion because the child's father committed rape or the child's father and mother committed incest? Anyway, of course, less than 1% of all abortions are occasioned by rape and incest. And so if we were to want to justify rape or abortion for that reason, it should be a very narrowly carved exception rather than justification for abortion on demand. But the point is, even we recognize that it's wrong to punish children for something that their parents have done. G.S. Ernest Wright puts it this way. He says, a law like this, the principle that the father shall not be put to death for the sins of the parent, such a law seems superfluous in modern society when the individual is the primary unit and the sense of community solidarity is weak or entirely lacking. In patriarchal or semi-nomadic life, however, the sense of community was very strong, particularly that of the family. A nomadic blood feud could annihilate a whole family for the crime of one of its members. Anyway, the idea of corporate guilt is there, but not in the criminal system. So what do we do to make sure that people are punished only for crimes that they themselves have committed and making sure that somebody is not wrongfully convicted for a crime that that person did not commit? Well, because guilt or punishment for crime must not be administered without individual guilt, the Hebrew system required strict procedures for determining guilt. First of all, they had cities of refuge established. There were three on each side of the River Jordan. And a person who was suspected of homicide is afraid that maybe they're going to come and get him and execute him for the crime. The person if there's a danger of people taking their law under their own hands and committing some sort of vigilante justice, the person could flee to the city of refuge. And there he could reside until their guilt or innocence 
had been determined by a court. We see that in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19, and again in Joshua 20. And part of the reason for this is that in the ancient world, and this is really even before the Mosaic law, but in the ancient world, if someone committed a crime, the responsibility for avenging that crime lay with the next of kin of the victim of the crime, the person's nearest relative. And, and so the city of refuge was there to ensure that, nope, you're not doing it yet. We've got to have a trial to ensure that, that person is guilty first. We see further requirement that judges must be honest and they must not take bribes. Exodus 23, 1 through 8 makes that very clear. It's violated many times in Amos 5 and 1 Samuel 8. We see condemnations upon the judges of Israel because they take crimes, but they take bribes, but they were prohibited from doing so. Now, you do see an exception to this of individual responsibility, and that is the exception of Achan. And you <coughs> recall in the case of Achan that his entire family is stoned to death with him because after the Israelites had conquered Jericho, he had kept certain spoils from the conquered city in his tent. And you recall what had happened there, that they had conquered the city of Jericho. They had been commanded, this is a corrupt place. You're not take anything from the city of Jericho. It's all to be destroyed. No personal plunder of any kind. And yet Achan decided that he would take some plunder for himself. And when he does so, and when this is discovered, not only he, but his entire family is stoned to death. Now, how can the family be stoned to death for the sin of Achan? Well, a couple of possible explanations for this. The first is that, you know, they're living in tents at this time. And it's pretty hard for him to conceal these things in the tent without the family being aware. So they were complicit in his guilt. And it may be that the family is composed of adults and young adults rather than small children. The other is that this is sometimes referred to as a special kind of ritual cleansing where the priests had to cleanse the city and cleanse the tribe of guilt by putting sin from among them. So it may be justified in either of those ways. Another requirement is that testimony must be corroborated. But Numbers 35.30, Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15, that let nothing be established except by two or more witnesses. And we'll talk more about that after the break. Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
again as we are talking about some of the uh, influences of Hebrew law on our own system of law. Colonel, you were just uh, getting to the part about uh, why witnesses matter. Why do witnesses matter in a case? Because we're trying to establish the truth. We're trying to establish what really did happen here. You can't do justice apart from truth. In order to do justice, you have to know the truth. Did the person commit the crime or didn't he? And if he did, are there extenuating or mitigating circumstances that we consider in determining what the punishment ought to be? And so what if it's just one person's word against another? How do we determine who's telling the truth? Well, the answer is that we have to have some form of corroboration. So let everything we are told be established with the mouth of two or three witnesses. One witness can be mistaken. One witness can lie. It is possible, but less likely, that two or three witnesses are going to be mistaken or lie. It at least reduces the possibility of error. So we have this requirement that testimony had to be corroborated by other witnesses. We have another requirement, and, and that is that people testify under oath that they swear before God that they are telling the truth. You know, this has been a requirement in American law as well, and it used to be that perjury was considered to be far more serious than it is today. In fact, there was a time under American law when an atheist was not permitted to testify because it was thought that if he does not believe that there is a God who hears all things and sees all things and knows all things, and we're not going to fool him, even if we can fool the judge and jury and everybody else, and we're going to have to stand before him and give account someday, if the person does not believe that, he can't be relied upon to tell the truth. But the requirement that I swear that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, is a requirement to ensure that people tell the truth. And in the Hebrew legal system, if a person testified falsely that has committed perjury, the punishment was severe. It would be the same punishment that the defendant would have received if he'd been found guilty of the crime. In other words, if you perjure yourself in a capital case, you get the death penalty. That's how concerned they were to make sure that the courts learned the truth. And they can't learn the truth unless we are very sure that people are telling the truth. Now, there's also extra-biblical Jewish law that we find in the Talmud and in other writings, but not in the Bible itself. It provides, for example, a quorum requirement of the court. A certain number of members of the court have to be present before they can deliberate. It requires that <clears throat> the accused be given a right to counsel. It requires that <clears throat> the accused has the privilege against self-incrimination. In fact, under Hebrew law, not only was the individual not required to incriminate himself, just as he is in American law, but he was not even allowed to incriminate himself. And the reason for this was that self-incrimination was considered to be a form of self-destruction, which was like suicide, which was 
strongly prohibited under Jewish law. And so strong protections against self-incrimination. And furthermore, that if the court judges the death penalty in a case, they have to deliberate again on another day just to ensure that that is still their decision. Somebody might change their mind in the meantime, or possibly new evidence would come up. In fact, extra-biblical sources tell us that criers would go up and down the streets between the first deliberation and the second, and they'd be saying something like, Joshua has been convicted of murder and has been sentenced to death. If anyone has evidence to clear him, let him come forth now. Well, strong protections to help ensure that no one is going to be wrongly convicted, no one convicted of a crime that the person didn't commit. Now, there's another concept here in Hebrew law, and this applies in Anglo-American law as well, and that's that normally the law requires two things for a person to be guilty of a crime. The first is what we call mens rea, the mens means mind, and so a guilty mind, in other words, criminal intent, and the other is actus reus, that is, some kind of guilty act associated with it. You have to have an intent to commit a crime, and you have to have actually engaged in some type of criminal act. You can't be punished in American law simply for having murderous thoughts. You can sit around and contemplate mass murders all you want, but the law can't touch you unless you do something in furtherance of it. Doesn't mean you have to actually commit murder. You can attempt to commit murder, or you can solicit somebody else to commit a murder. You can conspire with others to commit murder. So there's soliciting offenses, attempted offenses, and conspiracy to commit offenses. But you have to at least take some step toward the committing of that offense for you to be chargeable for the defense in court. And likewise, there normally has to be some type of criminal intent in order for the act to constitute a crime. A purely accidental killing is normally not going to be a crime. Now, it could be that you were so negligent as to exhibit a disregard for the lives and safeties of others, in which case it might be negligent homicide or something like this. But there has to be some kind of criminal intent. We do in American law have something that we call strict liability offenses. Personally, I believe that these should have no place in the criminal law system at all, and they had no place in the Hebrew legal system. And we do see that one doesn't have to actually commit the crime in order to satisfy mens rea, an intent to commit the crime, coupled with carrying out certain steps toward its completion, might be sufficient to constitute attempted murder. Asking someone to commit the murder for you might constitute solicitation. Planning with others might contemplate, constitute conspiracy. But just simply contemplating yourself is not going to be sufficient. But 
Consider, for example, Exodus 21, verses 28 to 29. If an ox gore a man or woman that they die, then shall the ox be surely stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. <clears throat> in other words, if your ox, or let's say if your bull out in the pasture, gores somebody to death, you can't be held liable for that. That was beyond your control. However, it goes on to say in verse 29, but if the ox were wont to push with his horn in time past, and had been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, but that he had killed a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned, and his owner shall also be put to death. What this means is that if you knew that ox was dangerous and you still kept that ox around, then that could be criminal negligence. And so that kind of guilty knowledge, we would say, would be sufficient to constitute an intent on your part. It's willfully exposing others to death by a dangerous situation that you have created and that you know exists. Even though the, the ox gored a person to death, the owner is not liable if he had no reason to believe the ox was dangerous. But if the ox has gored people on previous occasions and the owner knows this, his failure, refusal to restrain the ox constitutes such reckless indifference to the lives and safety of others that it is punishable criminally. And likewise, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, we read, When thou buildest a new house, then shalt thou make a battlement, that is a fence, for the roof. You know, they had flat roofs usually in that day, and people would do things on the roof, but you put a fence around it, that you bring not blood upon thine house, if any man fall from thence. Houses in ancient Israel, they had roofs. People used their roofs for sleeping, for other activities. And so you had a duty to ensure the safety of others by putting a fence around your roof. If you fail to do so, and somebody falls from your roof, then you might be held liable for civil damages in a lawsuit in court there. But the degree of criminal guilt could vary with the circumstances. We read, for example, if a thief be found breaking up, that is, breaking into a house, and he be smitten that he die, there shall be no blood be shed for him. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he had nothing, he should be sold for his, for his theft. That's Exodus 22, verses 2 through 3. Let's explain what that means. Common law usually distinguished between burglary in the nighttime and burglary in the daytime, and so did the laws of the ancient Hebrews. Breaking into a house at night is a more serious offense than during the day because it might involve a greater danger. The occupants may be startled in their sleep and believe themselves to be in danger of violence. The occupant may therefore kill a thief who breaks in at night and will not be liable for doing so. But if it's in daylight, the occupant may not kill the thief because man is created in God's image and human life is of greater value than property. So again, your intent will have a relevance here 
but it's going to depend in part on the circumstances as well. But now let's go on and let's look to capital murder. And we see capital murder set forth there in Genesis 9, verse 6. He that sheddeth man's blood, shall man shall by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. In other words, because human life is precious, we prohibit the taking of human life, and we punish it with the death penalty. Now, who does that apply to? Well, some would argue that the covenant that God made with Noah applies to all humanity, not just the Jews, because we're all descended from Noah and his descendants. And so this is of universal application, whereas the provisions that we see in the Mosaic law apply to only the Jews. And so what we see in the Bible here about punishment for crime, particularly capital punishment for crime, we may want to distinguish between capital punishment for murder, which the covenant God made with Noah says applies universally, versus capital punishment for other offenses, as we see them in the Mosaic Law. And, for example, we see other offenses. The Mosaic Law restates what the Noachic Covenant said, in Exodus 21, 12, he that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. So there is a capital offense. But also in the Mosaic Law, we see other capital offenses, kidnapping and selling into slavery, Exodus 21, 16, or striking and reviling a parent, Exodus 21, 15 to 17, rape, Deuteronomy 22, verse 25, incest, <laughs> and other unnatural sex. Exodus 22, 19, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 11 and 14 and 16. Some forms of unchastity, Deuteronomy 22, witchcraft, and other occult practices, including false prophecy, Exodus 22, 18, Leviticus 20, and verse 27, Obviously, these are considered very serious because witchcraft and other occult practices are considered to be dealing directly with the devil. And as you do so, you are a threat to society. Idolatry, worshiping idols, this is an offense against God. We might think that's just a matter of religious freedom today, but as they saw it, as the Bible sees it, that is an offense against Almighty God himself. Idolatry is a capital offense under Leviticus 20, verse 2, Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, and on through verse 10, and also in Deuteronomy 17, blasphemy. Now, it's interesting that we would consider blasphemy to be a very minor offense today, and we would consider it probably to be something that is protected by the First Amendment, guarantee of freedom of speech. But Hebrew law didn't look at it that way. Leviticus 24, 14, in Leviticus 24, 16, and verse 13 as well, all of these make blasphemy a capital offense. Because blasphemy, again, is an offense against God. If we don't think it's a serious offense today, it's probably because we don't have a high enough view of God. Now, it's interesting that Martin Luther generally believed in religious liberty, and yet 
he and a number of the other reformers believed that blasphemy was an offense that should be prohibited and punished by the state. Now, the reason he thought that was that, as he thought, blasphemy is an offense that brings down the wrath of God upon an entire community. And the judges of the community have a duty to protect the community from those kinds of offenses. And so they even recognized at this time that blasphemy is an offense that isn't deserving of civil punishment. Sabbath breaking, Exodus 31, 35, or as we saw before, perjury in capital cases, Deuteronomy 19 and verse 16, and also verse 19. And so 17 capital offenses are found in Old Testament Israel. And the English code of the 1600s makes 148 offenses capital under the laws of England in the 1600s. These included petty theft and trespass upon property. Now we think about how severe the laws of England were at that time, but need to understand something at that time. Yes, the laws themselves were very severe. All felonies were considered to be capital offenses. However, juries many times would refuse to indict people simply because they didn't think that person ought to be subject to a capital offense for what that person had done, and so they would refuse to indict or indict for a much lesser offense than actual larceny because they didn't want this to be the subject of a death penalty offense. Also, in those days, in the 1600s in England, in cases, cases were often plea bargained and things like this, but if they weren't, in cases that actually went to trial, the defendant was convicted only about 40% of the time. And even then, many times there'd be a pardon. It's been estimated that in all cases where a defendant was indicted with a capital felony in England at this time, the person would actually go to the gallows less than 10% of the time. So it may not be quite as severe as it sounds. Well, we've talked about capital punishment there, and the common method of execution was by stoning. And the reason that they would stone someone was it involved the entire community. And God wanted the entire community to realize the seriousness and the somberness of what they were doing. The accusers and the claiming witnesses were required to cast the first stones, and the rest of the community was required to join in thereafter. And so even though the condemned person may be deserving of death, the people were not to forget that they were taking the life of a fellow human being who, like them, had been created in the image of God. So, yes, they did practice capital punishment, but they fully recognized how severe that offense really was, and they didn't want people to lose sight of the severity of what they were doing. How are we on time? Uh, we got about uh, four minutes. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about non-capital offenses then. Non-capital offenses are punished in a variety of ways. One of the most common was 
forfeiture of property for refusal to obey a governor's command to assemble, or scourging. Scourging had to be within the limit of 40 stripes. Deuteronomy says 40 stripes. Deuteronomy 25.3. And that was for various miscellaneous offenses, including some forms of fornication, as we see in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 22. The scourging was to take place at the direction of the judge and in the presence of the judge. And the reason for the 40-stroke limit is clearly stated, lest if he should exceed and beat him above with many stripes, then thy brother would seem vile unto thee. In other words, excessive corporal punishment like this could have the effect of dehumanizing. And so we want to avoid that. And as Matthew Henry wrote, every punishment should be with solemnity, that those who see it may be filled with dread and be warned not to offend in the like manner. And though the criminal might be shamed, as well as put to pain for their warning and disgrace, yet care should be taken that they do not appear totally vile. Happy those who are chastened of the Lord to humble them, that they should not be condemned with the world to destruction. The most common form of punishment, though, by the way, the New Testament says 39 stripes, 40 stripes minus 1, 39. Now, is that more mercy in the New Testament? Well, there are probably a couple of reasons. One is you want to be sure you don't miscount, so give you a margin of error. But the other is that commonly they would use a, a scourge that had three cords on it. And a scourge with three cords, if you strike 13 times with that three scourge, that would constitute 39 stripes. 14th time would be 42 stripes, so that it exceeds. So that's the most likely reason for the 39 stripe limit in the New Testament. Anyway, so those are some of the reasons. And we can talk more about this as we come next week. We've got a lot more to discuss in other forms of minor punishment, such as restitution and the like. But for right now, we've seen how Hebrew law was practiced. And I can tell you this, that compared to the laws of many other ancient societies, such as the laws of Draco in ancient Athens, they were draconian. That's where the term draconian gets its name or the laws of the Assyrians and many other ancient societies that deal with death by torture for minor offenses. The Hebrew laws are very humane, and they're designed to not only protect against crime, but also to ensure that we don't lose sight of the humanity of the person who has committed the crime. He is still one who is created in the image of God. I know we have a tendency to sometimes look at uh, those law systems as so primitive. Oh, they were just brutal, and it was just you know eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thinking. But uh, the way you have described this, it show, there was clearly a lot of thought that went into this. And and here's the thing that really strikes me: this was for for offenses that had actually taken place. In other words, it wasn't for what someone might do. It was less. Uh, 
preventive in the sense that it punishes everybody by taking some freedom from them, uh, as opposed to corrective and restorative, which to me, that seems to jive more with what real justice would look like. Yes, there are even proposals that we should be able to identify by DNA people who are likely to commit offenses and confine them and so on. But that is contrary to what criminal justice is all about. We only punish people for things that they have done, not things that they might do in the future. Thank you.